Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Max Swango is usually based in Dallas, Texas, but I was lucky enough to catch up with him as he passed through Melbourne. Max is a founding partner and managing director with Invesco Global Real Estate, which manages around $80 billion across the US, Europe, and Asia. Max and I talk about the challenges facing the global property market. Then we dive into particular opportunities such as the, quote, retail apocalypse, end quote, rising inflation and interest rates, as well as the key sectors that Max is most excited about. Over the past 12 months, the conversation around inflation and interest rates has been the key talking point for most asset allocators and investors with established portfolios. Which assets can I use to deflect the impact of rising rates? How about my yield? Max addresses some of these key points through the lens of property, then walks us through the active versus passive debate, how he would research a property fund, the macroeconomic picture around the world, and more. There's a lot to fit in in around about 30 minutes. To start, I ask Max for the name of the investor that he's learnt the most from. Max, thanks for taking some time to join me today. Thank you. It's great to be here in person. 
Yes, it is. You've flown in from overseas. I have. From uh, actually, I was uh, snow skiing in Utah. Oh wow! Coming here. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. And now it's maybe mid twenties here in Melbourne. It's nice. Yeah, it is. And you're heading up to Noosa after this. I am. Yeah. Do here's, a little bike riding. Here's a question that I have. I didn't prepare. Uh, where are some of your favorite spots in Australia? Oh goodness. Uh, it's hard. I've been coming to Australia for about 15 years and I haven't been anywhere that I don't like. <laughs> Sid, clearly Sydney and Melbourne are two of the, two of the great cities of the world. Mm. And uh, the sunshine in, in uh, Brisbane is outstanding. I've been over to Perth. It would be a hard one to say. Okay. I, 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 I would probably defer to the, uh, the, the warm weather. Okay. Yep. I like it. Very diplomatic as well, <laughs> because um, if you say you like Melbourne, who knows uh, who's I'm listening. Trouble. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I thought I'd start off with two icebreakers. The first is, who is the investor that you have learned the most from? Yeah. Um, well, personally, um, I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan for all the obvious reasons that mm -hmm. we don't need to get into. Um, I, uh, uh, more personal to me is um, someone uh, who actually lives in Dallas, who has been a chief investment officer for several of the institutional investors in Dallas, Dallas Police and Fire, uh, uh, the Boy Scouts of America, and currently uh, a hospital, uh, the Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas. His name is, is uh, Fred Richmond. Okay. And Fred is a, um, he's a generalist. He's a, he's a CIO and he, uh, I've learned, I've learned tremendous amount from him. Um, one of one point of which is that, and you know, this, uh, with your background that 95, he would tell me, he would tell us that 95% of total return is based on asset allocation. Mm. Right. And so let's get the asset allocation, right. And don't bother me with the details of what what apartment complex you're buying in Austin, Texas. Yep. Um, so when I, when we, when we launch a new fund and I send the fund to Fred, Fred doesn't ask me, Fred doesn't say, Max, tell me about the real estate market and where are we in the cycle? Because he knows I have no idea. <laughs> right. Yep. He says, Max, has the team changed? Has the strategy changed? Have the terms changed? And if the answer to all of those questions are no, then he reinvests in the fund. Okay. That's great. Um, second question is, What's one piece of advice you would give to an 18 year old Max? Yeah. Um, well, 18, I have, uh, three kids who are in college. One, my youngest of which is 17. And, um, my advice to her and to my older kids has been, um, don't worry about, don't get too focused on what you're going to do the rest of your life. Mm. Right. That you're too, she's too young at 17 years old to know what she wants to do for the rest of her life. She needs to enjoy where she is in her life, and then she needs to find what she loves and what she's passionate about. And hopefully she can do that in the next four or five years while she's in college. Yeah, I'm sure she will. It's, um, it's an exciting time in life. Uh, so many of our listeners will be familiar with residential property. There's a love affair with residential property in Australia. Um, coming at it from, I guess, a, a global lens, how would you describe the or contrast the similarities and differences between residential property investing and commercial property investing? Sure. Um, yeah, very different. And it's one of the, uh, the good news, bad news about investing in property, um, like we've done for, for uh, 30 plus years, uh, because everyone owns a home. And so everyone or, or has owned a home or tried to buy. So everyone's an expert. Yep. Everyone knows real estate and they're all experts. And, and it, it's clearly very different. Right. The uh, the characteristics that make a good um, commercial real estate investment uh, are obviously very different than residential. 
And so the expertise required is, is also very different. Mm. And I don't, all I have to do is say the word retail. Mm-hmm. And that would, um, you know, that would tell you that, yep. that you've got to know, you've got to have uh, some, some different kind of expertise. For sure. Yeah. So here's something that you, you spoke about 95% of you know, returns coming from asset allocation. Uh, another question that I didn't prepare. So on the fly here, Max, um, what are some metrics or things that you study on a, say, like a day-to-day basis? If you're looking at portfolios, are there any things that you look at that maybe say an equities investor or another type of portfolio manager might not look at? So there are metrics, ratios, things like this? Yeah. Um, well, things that we look at clearly are going to be, um, you know, start with an income return or cap rate. Yep. We would call it a cap rate. So how does our cap rate compare to um, bonds, bond yields, for mm-hmm. example, would be important. Um, how does our cap rate in our portfolio compare to um, the broader market or, or um um, what we're buying new properties for. Mm-hmm. So income returns, cap rates is something that, that we pay very close attention to. Uh, um, current market rents in our, or existing rents in our portfolio relative to market. Right. Right. Very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. So if our, if the existing rents in our portfolio are $10 and markets $15, that's a good thing, mm. right? There's, there's, there's two ways to look at that. Either there's upside in our income as those rents expire and we can roll those rents to market or it's downside protection mm. if you think that rents are going to fall mm. right so those are two two of the critical things that that we would uh, focus on market rents and and uh, and uh, income returns i heard you talk recently in an inner circle with the inside network where you talked about um there was a question i believe from a financial advisor who was talking about basically how do you get conviction when we see news headlines with things like uh, air quotes, retail apocalypse, you know, malls being shuttered sh- up and those types of things. Um, how do you respond to that question? Yeah. Well, there's, there's uh, interestingly, um, the world has too much retail space. And, and the biggest abuser of that is the United States. The United States has way more retail space per capita than any other country. And that's, not, that's nothing new. That wasn't, that, that's pre-crisis, uh, that's pre-internet even mm-hmm. e-commerce. So the evolution of, of, of repurposing retail space is something that's been going on for decades. It's just been accelerated. Mm-hmm. It, it was accelerated by technology, mm-hmm. by e-commerce, and then by the lockdowns that we went through. Yeah. So, um, so we're going through this transformation of changing the way we shop, changing the way we buy things, and changing the, the, the how much retail space we need and what kind of retail space we need. So it's nothing new, it's just happening much, much faster. Now, the result is that the retail space that we're left with is, is uh, performing very, very well. Retailers are willing to pay more rent for the high quality real estate, retail real estate space mm. than they were five years ago. And one of the reasons is because they need less square footage, mm. right? So uh, pick your retailer, retailer XYZ. They don't need, let me use Dallas as my, 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 mm-hmm. our headquarters sure. and, and where I live. Retailer XYZ doesn't need six locations in Dallas, Texas, they've decided anymore because they've got such a great presence on the, on, on the internet, 
right? They've got such a great website, but they do. But retailers have recognized that in order to be successful, they have to be excellent in both e-commerce and bricks and mortar locations, mm-hmm. right? My three college kids, they are not going to buy things on the internet unless they have a brick and mortar location they can go to and return things and touch things and try them on and all of that. Yep. So they've got to be excellent in both, mm-hmm. right? But they don't need six locations. They need two. And they don't need 20,000 square feet per location. They need five. Mm. So the total square footage that these retailers need is, is much lower. So they're willing to pay. They, they're able to pay more dollars per square foot for that space. Mm. So the successful remaining retail space is, uh, is, highly, is very valuable. It's our job to make sure that we own those properties. Does, this, does the same logic follow with COVID? Um, brought up San Francisco just before and I was looking at the numbers before we started recording and I think the latest vacancy rate was around 19% uh, which is quite high does the same logic follow for that like do you foresee the work from home movement uh, particularly big technology companies even some other companies industrial companies too that work from home movement do you do you see that kind of unwinding and people returning to office space we do yeah we do yeah I think retail is the extreme Right. Yeah, I think we have much too much retail space and you'll continue to see that get repurposed um, to a more um, normal or, or long term level. Um, there is some of that in office. Right. There, there is some argument that uh, the amount that we need, le- we will need less office space into the future than we than we used uh, pre pandemic. Um I can buy some of that. Technology is much better, mm. right? We all now have workstations at home. So um, we all, I, the consensus, it's, it's very interesting to see the consensus evolve every quarter because a year ago or a year and a half ago, the future of office was in h- highly questionable, mm. right? Like we were all going to work from home and we were going to meet in the coffee shops. Yep. So we didn't need to pay for office space, mm-hmm. right? And companies were going to save millions of dollars a year by not leasing office spaces. We were going to, we were going to do that, right? And to see the evolution as the pandemic has faded and as companies have recognized that you can probably maintain your business long-term over Zoom and at coffee shops, but you can't grow it. Mm. And if you want to be a premier company, whether it's technology or banking, investment banking or property investor, you've got to be together. You've got to be able to collaborate. You've got to be able to mentor your young people. You've got to be able to attract and retain young people. Those same college kids that I talked about that have excellent resumes that can work wherever they want to work, they don't want to go to a company whose senior people are working from home. Mm. They want to go to an office where they can learn, where they can grow, where they can grow their careers, Mm. right? And when I look at how we have gone from the office being closed to 25% to 50% occupancy, and that's happened over the last couple of years, right? The people who have been in the office are the people that are getting promoted. Right. Okay. Because they're visible. Yeah. They're hardworking, they're visible, and, and they're getting noticed. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I've, because I speak with a lot of fund managers, I've heard it even further up. So when it's sales and these types of things that Zoom would be a great way to introduce yourself, but deals don't get done through Zoom. They don't. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's an interesting anecdote um, about people getting hired. I was at an event last night, first physical event in two years, and there were some graduates there and they were saying exactly the same thing. They were saying, when I look around, if I don't see someone who's my superior and I can ask questions to, it's much more difficult. And they kind of get lost as, as new employees. And I see that in my team as well. Very challenging. Yeah. And, and the competition for talent is intense, right? 
we, we, we are competing to buy properties. We're competing to, um, to raise capital from clients. We're competing to keep capital from our clients. And we're competing for talent. Mm. And talented people want to collaborate and they want to grow in their careers and they can't do that from home. Mm. One of the things you mentioned before was cap rates. Mm. And you talked about how maybe you would look at bond yields. How we're seeing a lot of, I guess, it's some spin to make this doom and gloom with higher inflation, higher rates, particularly in the United States, but also throughout the rest of the world. How does property, in your opinion, fare against that backdrop as we move throughout 2022 and 2023? Sure. Um, well, let me start with, uh, in my 34 career, it does feel like uh, every year um, they hmm. have been telling me yes. that interest rates are going to go up and they never have. Yep. Um, but <laughs> stepping back, uh, there actually have been seven times when the 10-year treasury has gone up for at least three consecutive quarters. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in the last six times that that's happened, cap rates have actually gone down. Wow. Okay. And that's really because interest rates have been going up because the economy's been good, mm -hmm. right? The Fed's raising rates. The economy's good. They're trying to keep a handle on inflation. And when the economy's good, that creates more demand for space. People need more office space. They're spending more. It creates demand for retail and logistics space. And people are willing to go pay more for homes or apartments or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So occupancies go up, rents go up, cash flows go up, and values go up. So the, the value of real estate goes up, and people are willing to pay a lower cap rate in that rising rate environment when the economy is good. That's what's happened the last six times. Now, interestingly, that's what's happening again today. Hmm. We're seeing rates clearly have risen in mm -hmm. the we the 10-year treasury not that long ago was at one and a half today it was around 2.3 mm -hmm. and we're seeing downward pressure on cap rates because there is capital coming into the asset class so it's happening again so when you look back and um and i kind of have that i'll fall back on my friend the cio in dallas mm -hmm. who has the big picture view and i don't know that this time is different and that um, one of the best leading indicators of strong real estate performance is rising, has been historically rising interest rates. Mm. So when I see rising interest rates, that tells me uh, that real estate returns are likely to be pretty good in the near term. That's almost like, unless you know those numbers, you might think the opposite. It's very easy. It's alluring to think the opposite, isn't it? How about then um, in terms of, you mentioned before in terms of portfolio positioning, and this is um, interesting because we we're talking off air about how you think about like percentage allocations in institutional portfolios or wholesale portfolios. Have you seen in your or heard in your conversations you replacing any of those asset classes like treasuries or anything further down the risk curve have have that has that shuffled across for that yield premium sure yeah no doubt um well when we started in the business uh in the 1980s portfolios were 60 40 yep right and that you don't see a 60 40 portfolio anymore right and uh so now it's maybe maybe generally speaking 60 20 20 mm -hmm. with the new 20 percent being alternatives hmm. And one of the biggest pieces of alternatives is property. Obviously, every investor in every country is different. Mm -hmm. um, so real estate over the last uh, three decades has basically gone from 0% of an institutional investor's portfolio to 10 to 15% mm. of an institutional investor's portfolio. Now, the new um, uh, source of capital and what will be interesting to watch over the next decade 
in, in longer mm -hmm. will be the non-institutional capital. Here in Australia, you would call that the wholesale market. Mm -hmm. In the US, maybe it's the retail market, the high net worth market. But those investors, companies like ourselves, have created vehicles for those investors to have access to institutional quality portfolios. And I think you'll see tremendous amounts of, you already are seeing tremendous amounts of capital come from that non-institutional world, which is exciting. Mm. It's, a, it's just another source of capital. It's kind of like when the sovereign wealth funds came into the market 15 years ago. Yep. Today, it's the non-institutional capital. Mm. Yeah, because that's the question that I get a lot is basically around like duration risk. Right. And so naturally, therefore, commercial property gets brought up um, as maybe this is an alternative class that we can explore. Um, uh, and I, I see that we're seeing that play out now with, with, with yield curves and those types of things. We're seeing people become more aware of this, not just institutional clients. All of a sudden, I, 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 I don't have the latest data on me, but I imagine people Googling what is an inverted yield curve? And then they're thinking, okay, what's this defensive part of my portfolio? And these are the types of conversations more and more people are having. And I just, I, I guess that's just an observation of mine. Max, there are, there is one more question here I did have around inflation. Sure. And you kind of alluded to it earlier on where you talked about, um, you talked about the, the market rents and repricing because inflation is coming. I know from experience that a lot of you know, leases and, and rents are tied to CPI. Is, is that something that you see as kind of like latent pricing power in portfolios? It is. Um, and again, I'll just go back to the data. Uh, the, the, the investment consultants will tell you, will show you that of all the asset classes, the major asset classes, real estate has the highest correlation to inflation. Mm -hmm. And those correlations get dragged down in times when inflation is low. So when inflation is high, mm -hmm. greater than 3%, the correlations are high, higher. Yep. When inflation is greater, and, and let's use the U.S. data because it's the, we have the longest data series and it's the most transparent. Mm -hmm. When inflation is, has been greater than 5% in the U.S., the correlation, the real estate return correlations to inflation have been 0.83. Oh, wow. So very, very high. Yep. And again, similar to what my comments on rising rates a few minutes ago, it's exactly what we're seeing today in the U.S., so you see inflation north of th north of, certainly north of five percent, and real estate returns have been very strong mm. ever since inflation started. Now there's there's several reasons that real estate is a, is an is an inflation hedge, one of which is what you mentioned the ability to raise rents mm -hmm. and and rents rising and incomes rising and thus values rising. Uh, the second would be that well you know and expenses are, are going up as well, but mm -hmm. mint on, on a commercial real estate property, those expenses generally get, the increases in expenses get passed through to tenants. Mm -hmm. So they're not the responsibility of the landlord. We also see demand pull inflation, meaning that there's more demand for property because the economy's growing, right? So that's creating values, that's causing values to go up. And then finally, we're seeing cost push inflation, costs are going up. Mm. So it's more expensive to build property which means fewer properties are getting built. Mm -hmm. And if you own a portfolio of assets and fewer properties are getting built, it makes the value of your existing portfolio that much better. Mm -hmm. Now, and then those properties, there will be properties that get built, they're more expensive. And so the rents required to justify those more expensive properties are higher, which makes, again, your existing portfolio, the ability to raise rents in your existing portfolio easier. Are you saying... On that basis, are you seeing more uh, inbound interest conversations about this sleeve in portfolios? No question. 
yeah, the, the inflation uh, topic is driving more capital into real estate today. People, investors, whether it's institutional or non-institutional, are looking for things to protect against inflation. And real assets, property is top of the list. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, I've got three questions here, which will probably be a bit shorter, but um, I think they round out this conversation really nicely. Is that here in Australia, at least, we have, uh, the, uh, when it comes to property and investing uh, in property at a, like a larger scale rather than, say, residential property, people look at listed products and oftentimes they're drawn to passive strategies. So just simple, you know, market cap weighted or something like that um, versus say unlisted or listed trusts, even listed funds. Um, how do you, I guess, contrast those two? So passive strategies and property versus active. Sure. Um, a couple, a couple comments there. Um, and we do, we manage a $70 billion direct real estate, mm. private real estate portfolio that's global, US, Europe, and Asia. We manage a $20 billion yeah. listed global REITs portfolio. So we're, so we're involved in both. And I can give you the pros and cons of both, mm -hmm. clearly. Um, passive strategies, there's no secret. There's been a tremendous amount of capital go in GREITs, in, in, yeah. in publicly traded real estate companies. Passive strategies have become very popular low fees, beta to, yep. the, to the index. And, uh, and, and that has made sense. I mean, that's worked. And, you know, the response, we're an active manager, clearly. We've had to compete with that. And, our, and we, have, we are competing with that. And part of our response is to do more of a fundamental beta portfolio that we can do for low fees, yep. right? Use the fundamental research we have, apply it to a more passive type strategy and do it in a low fee environment that competes with passive and that works. That's our answer to, to the public markets. Better lucky than good, uh, you can't invest passively in the private markets. You can't buy it off a screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, it's an actively, I, I, my team would kill me if I, told that, if I said it was a passively <laughs> managed portfolio. It's extremely actively managed. And if you think about, uh, it, it moves a little, it doesn't get valued daily, gets valued generally speaking quarterly. Right. I mean, there are little nuances here and there, but um, uh, if you think and if you think it, 30 years ago, your portfolio, especially in Australia, was probably half office and half retail. Mm. Right. 50 percent. Your 50 percent office is now probably 25 percent of your portfolio and your 50 your portfolio that used to be 20, 50 percent retail is probably now 10 or 15 percent mm. of your portfolio. And there are all these other interesting sectors. We talked about residential Right. Mm. We've talked. Uh, we haven't talked about some of the others: self storage, life science, data centers, single family rentals, medical office buildings, life science projects. The uh, the ability to invest in some really interesting sectors today is is making the uh, the, the the business fun. Mm. Actually, might that's a good segue into this then. So, are those the sectors? Some of those things you mentioned there, like um, data centers and and so forth, are those particular areas that you're looking at and your team is excited about? We are, yeah. And, and again, go back to uh, where we were uh, 20 years ago, we were probably 10% logistics. Today, we're 30% logistics. Yeah, right. Right. And uh, Will in logistics has outperformed the other sectors for the last five years, plus or minus, and probably will again this year, mm -hmm. given the tremendous demand for space. Um, will that go on forever? No. So would I want 100% of my money to be in logistics? No. Am I really happy at 25 to 30%? Yes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense combined with the other sectors, right? The other sector that has done very well recently has been residential. 
And residential is a sector that exists primarily in the U.S. There's some of it in Japan and place in other uh, countries in Europe. You will begin to see it develop in Australia as well. But if you're an Australian investor in particular, uh, it's one of the nice things about investing in U.S. properties. You get exposure to residential and residential will be about 30 percent of a portfolio and it's done very well. Um, an, an interesting new sector uh, today is single family rentals. So we now we weren't able to build large portfolios of single family rental properties before because we didn't have the technology. We now have the technology that allows us to buy large um, uh, numbers of single family homes in in bulk mm-hmm. and and ma- and manage those assets. So the technology right. exists to allow us to do that now. So I think you'll see of the residential portion of our portfolio, probably a third of it will be in single family rentals, with two third being the more traditional multifamily. Then you also look at demographics and aging demographics in many countries around the world creates demand for for health services. And that can be medical office building, it can be life science projects, Uh, the transitionary nature of the populations around the world creates demand for self storage, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another interesting sector today. I think that's the the key takeaway for me is that it's just evolving. It's just changing, right? It's it's we still need properties, we still need space. Even if we move into e-commerce, we see more of this. Uh, it's definitely something that I've in conversation have heard more and more. Um, maybe I'll end with this question, which is, I think this is uh, quite fascinating. Um, is how would you analyze a property fund manager? So, and you can take this from the perspective of say an advisor or someone who is allocating for their own wealth or private wealth, how would you, what are the types of questions or what things would you look at? Yeah. Uh, great question. I wish I had prepared for it because I'm sure um, I, could <laughs> some, I'm sure I could come up with some zingers. Um, I think uh, I'll tell you one of the traps that I see today um, and, and clearly I'm biased. There's no question is I, I, uh, the, the single sector focused managers are very popular today. Yeah. And that does, and they do tend to become more and more popular um, when things are good. Mm. And, and then they go out of favor when things are bad because they have, they have trouble, mm. right? And I, I just would not want to have to wake up every morning justifying one sector, right? I don't want to wake up every morning and have to justify retail. Yep. Like I'm not going to sell my retail properties because it's all we do. Right. And today it's logistics. That's the bell of the ball today. Mm -hmm. So logistics is is great today. We talked about it already. The strength, but it's not going to last forever. And I I have never seen a single sector focused manager sell their sector and return capital to their investors. It doesn't happen. Mm. And so that as an investor, that that would worry me. Right. I, I would look for a manager with expertise um, across markets, across sectors who can go where they see best relative value. And when it's time to sell your shopping centers, you sell your shopping centers. You don't have to justify them every day when it's time to sell your, or lighten up on your logistics, you lighten up on your logistics and you go into more interesting sectors, whether it's medical office or self storage or single family rental or wherever it is that you see best relative value and not have to wake up every day, justifying the same sector every day. Mm. That's it's a really interesting framework, just even just thinking about that diversification benefit there as well. Um, I, I want to circle back just to one thing, which you mentioned before, is that um, you have a 70% direct, is that correct? And 30% listed. 
In terms of, so I guess there's two questions. One is why was it 70-30? And in a portfolio, the correlation differences to a traditional portfolio. So when you have, let's say if you only were thinking of listed property as an investor versus you had that opportunity to have direct as well in a, yeah. in a portfolio. Yeah, it, well, what you're referring to in the 70-30 portfolio is a very specific fund that is available for wholesale investors or non-institutional mm -hmm. investors in Australia. Yep. And it's a fund we designed with the input of some of the largest um, platforms, wholesale okay. platforms. Yep. And so their feeling was that 70%, a little bit more than two-thirds of the portfolio is in private real estate. And that gives their clients the opportunity to invest in a high, a very high quality portfolio of existing institutional quality real estate in 70% of their portfolio. Yep. The other 30% is in, is in uh, liquid real estate companies. And even that 30% is in a fund that we, that we selected specific for this particular uh, strategy, the overall fund that invests across the capital stack. Okay. So it invests in equity and debt real estate equity and debt, and that makes it less volatile. So we can use, and so that, that particular fund that we've had for almost 20 years now has provided equity-like returns with much lower volatility mm -hmm. within the portfolio. So over long periods of time, that, that particular 30% will be more volatile than the private real estate. For sure. But the returns will be, the total return will be similar. It'll be more volatile getting there. So we give up some a little bit of stability in return for liquidity. Okay. So the wholesale investors that want to come into this fund, they have some liquidity. They can trade in and out if they want to. If they need to get out on, we have daily liquidity for them, mm -hmm. and we can use that public mark that public market exposure to provide that liquidity. Okay. Yeah. So that that, that was kind of my my thinking is that there's the kind of the downside protection, like in in a way from whether it's from valuations or the direct focus and those rents versus the listed strategies because most uh, at least when i speak of retail investors in australia most of them just go listed and then they are surprised by the volatility because they think oh it's property it should be not correlated you know it's and it's so it's risk on right so um yeah I, I i think that's an important point to illustrate well max that brings us to the end of the conversation um i think considering you didn't get any questions in advance this is and I put you on the spot. It's the, it's, it's the end of the week. It's a, it's a Friday and you're about to go to Noosa. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to say you did very well. So thanks for joining me. That was wonderful. But it, went, it flew by. would love to do it again sometime. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. 
simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.